0: I can think through every one of my decisions and be, oh, well, like, how will this impact the me of the future, 50 years, 100 years down the line, and actually think of myself in that sort of long term way. I become much more aligned with the self that I want to be and the choices that I want to make, which are for the long term good of everyone. And that I find extremely meaningful.
1: This is Before It's Too Late. I'm your host, Christian Suzanne. Let's learn together what matters most in life. We are excited to speak with Dr. James Payer today. He is the founder and CEO of Cambrian Biopharma, a distributed drug development company, developing therapeutics targeting the biological drivers of aging. Since he was a teenager, James has dedicated his life to building medicines that can keep people alive and healthy longer than just 80 to 100 years. The mission of his company is to translate laboratory breakthroughs in the extension of health lifespan into the clinic, predicting that the world is entering a revolution in biomedical research by targeting the root causes of aging and age-related disease. In this fascinating conversation, we are exploring James' approach to meaning, which is striving to maximize the experience of life and not accepting death from a religious, a philosophical, and a scientific perspective. You might be surprised by the similarities James is finding with religion. Where in order to be meaningful, there was a continuity of the human spirit afterlife, which gives meaning to this part of life. My philosophy is, he says, to update this view to the secular worldview. My goal is to have death be a choice. We are learning from him what is scientifically possible in that regard and what aging actually means. Also, how aging itself has changed over the last hundred years. He's explaining to us how we are at a critical juncture for healthcare in this century, turning the round from treating diseases like cancer to preventing them. I was deeply impressed by the substance and profoundness of James' thinking, which is radical indeed. The only way to give meaning to a life is to approach each day as if we were indefinite. And the notion that I will be here for a cosmic blink of an eye detracts from this meaning I give to my life. But if really almost everybody chose to live forever, what would life look like on our already now highly damaged planet, we asked him. Hear what he has to say about this, and also what the legacy is James wants to leave behind. You will be surprised. We are excited to have you as our guest on Before It's Too Late today, James Payer.
0: Hello, Christiana. Thank you very, very much for having me.
1: I'm very excited to be talking with you today. When we recently met at a dinner the discussion around the table was about how we can find better ways to accept death. And it was quite surprising to me when you objected and said, no, I don't want to settle for accepting the end. Where is this unusual prospecting of yours coming from?
0: So by a bit of, of background here, I think this is coming from the fact that I've decided to spend my life, since I was really a teenager, working on building medicines that can keep people alive and healthy longer than our evolutionarily determined lifespans, which you know usually are around 80 years, but maximum around 100. I think philosophically. And we can talk about this a little bit when we Mm -hmm. we chat today. I think philosophically, the ability to think of oneself as deriving meaning from the here and now in our everyday experiences, that is what imbues our lives with meaning. And death is the end of that meaning. And so, again, we can talk about this Mm -hmm. a little bit more in detail. But when we talk about finding better ways to accept death, what that triggers in my mind is this idea that's called terror management theory. That each of us, from the person on the street to even some of the best philosophers in history, have had to pull their logic and philosophy into knots in order to justify and rationalize death because we are so extremely scared of becoming nothing. And I think instead of just being scared of becoming nothing and therefore tying our philosophy in knots and making all of these exceptions to accept death, I like the more interventional approach, let's say, and say, no, life is actually wonderful, and let's try to maximize the experience that we have with life. And not accept death. And and this started for me actually really when I was a kid watching my grandfather, who I'm, whom I idolized, dying of, of cancer. And so it's been philosophically, but also scientifically a mission for me my entire adult life.
1: My God, that is so interesting, James, and very, really unusual and also very courageous because wouldn't you be confronted with lots of questions around your disrespecting what God wants, what all the religions imply?
0: So, I have had many of those conversations with people, but I, I actually see in our increasingly secular society society, right? Where fewer and fewer people are religious. One of the tendencies of this more secular society is to do kind of what we were talking about at dinner, just accept death as a natural thing and figure out how to create a philosophy that when our existence blinks out and becomes nothing, that we say, "Oh, well, it's okay." Right? Well, we are, you know, Carl Sagan would would say we are star stuff who is returning to star to the stars. And in fact, when I look back at, the, at religion, I actually see more in line with the way that I look at the world with some of the ways that the religions look at the world, which is this idea that in order to be meaningful, that there is a continuity of the human spirit, that after death in a religion, the soul or the spirit or whatever somehow lives on and that mm-hmm. afterlife gives meaning to this part of the life. And now I'm not a religious person, so I don't believe that there is something afterwards. But I do believe that the undercurrent, the philosophical underpinning of this idea of the, la- of the afterlife does give more meaning to our existence here and now. And so, so I actually think that my philosophy takes the true philosophical underpinnings of religion and updates it to a secular worldview that doesn't have to tie itself in knots to accept this horrible suffering thing called death.
1: Mm, That's big. James, as a bioscientist, do you want actually human beings to live healthily longer or do you want to eliminate death overall?
0: So this is the part where we have to separate the, the theory and the philosophy from the reality a little mm-hmm. bit, right? So on the theoretical and philosophical level, my goal would be to have death be a choice for humans, right? Where you know we can live in very good health as long as we want to and when someone grows tired of this life they could choose in any number of ways to stop experiencing this life that would be my philosophical goal but now let's talk about what's scientifically possible and what for example the company that i'm working with is actually doing and there you we take a very different sort of not at all philosophical approach and that is right now almost all humans in the developed world are Dying of a small number of like a, you know, between five and ten diseases of aging, starting with heart disease and cancer, but then going on down the list. And my view is that we will have medicines in the next decade or or a little bit more approved for human use that can slow down the the risk of the progression and risk of all of these diseases at the same time. And so the way that this field will start to affect all of our lives is going to be smaller at first, right? Something that adds five years or 10 years of extra healthy life to every person. And then where it goes from there, scientifically, it's too early to tell. But I think that we have to keep working on this problem and keep getting better to move towards that philosophical goal of making death a choice.
1: That is obviously interesting to each and everybody of us at some point in time, sooner or later. Would you elaborate a bit more on what exactly you are doing scientifically with developing these drugs in the context of aging what sure. does aging actually mean biologically
0: it's actually a very good question that has i think an answer that will surprise a lot of people because obviously we all see aging happen right all around mm-hmm. us and and within us but defining what it is is actually not that straightforward and i think it's best illustrated through a thought experiment. So as we live, let's say a 25-year-old has a certain percent chance that in, in that person's 25th year that their body will give up on them and that they will die, right? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And as that person goes from 25 to 26, they have a certain percent chance that their body will give up on them and that they will die. But it's pretty close percentages between that 25-year-old and that 26-year-old. But as you accelerate that to, let's say, 70 years old, that 70-years-old has a much higher chance of their body giving up on them and ultimately dying between 70 and 71 than the 25-year-old had. And because? So because there is this accumulation of what we call biological damage that builds up little by little in our bodies as we get older, and we are less and less able to heal from it or to fix this damage. And so that increase in biological damage that then causes an increased risk of mortality with time, that increased risk of mortality with time is what we call aging. And so when we say that we want to fight against aging, what we really want to do is have every single year that someone lives, they live with the healthiness of a 25 to 35 year old and the same risk of their body giving up on them and dying. And that's how we define aging and also define what it means to stop the damage of aging from happening.
1: That's so interesting. And now that you've defined aging, I would be really curious, has aging changed over the last 100 years, the process that you just described, or is it from a biological point of view, the very same process in our bodies? I mean, our environment has changed quite a bit, hasn't it?
0: Yes. So the you know evolution happens very, very slowly. And so the species that we are today is really the same species as it was 100 years ago. And the types of diseases that we get are the same types of diseases that we Mm -hmm. could get 100 years ago. But there is a huge change. And that huge change actually has nothing to do with aging and age-related diseases and entirely to do with infectious diseases, antibiotics, and vaccines. Because the diseases that we die of today, this category we call age-related diseases, it actually you know even though most of our loved ones have probably been taken those of those that we've lost have probably been taken by these diseases this is actually a very new phenomenon in human history. It's really only been since the 1940s or so that these diseases have been the primary killers of humanity. Before that, it was, you know, tuberculosis and influenza. And, you know, you go back even a little bit further, things like smallpox that were the greatest killers in society. And so we've as a species, only been having to philosophically deal with our own bodies breaking down as our primary natural limit for the last 75 years or so, which I think makes this exactly the right time, both technologically and societally, to start thinking about what we can actually do to help people suffering from these diseases that are relatively new as part of the broader human experience. Totally,
1: very new. It seems like yesterday, 75 years, that's nothing in terms of uh, human evolution. So are you saying, James, that these diseases, these newer diseases, like infections and vaccines, where are they coming from?
0: Yeah, let let me try to be a little bit more clear there. So 75 to 100 years ago, it was these infectious diseases that had been around kind of with humankind for millennia who that were our primary causes of death, right? And mm-hmm. and so things like we've experienced with COVID, new diseases coming up and, and killing an awful lot of people, that was really the norm in human society. The, you could say that the rates of COVID deaths is actually lower than most years of deaths from infectious disease before 1900. And so the change has happened because we've eliminated so many of those diseases with vaccines and antibiotics. And now that we are living longer, I mean, we have to remember that the average human lifespan in 1900 was only 32 years old, right? And so since 1900, now that we've eliminated all of these diseases, now people in mass are living long enough. that. It is cancer and heart attacks and these sorts of things that will be our ultimate ends. And that's what's new, which is not, of course, to say that people didn't have cancer or heart attacks before. It was just rare enough that it wasn't the primary way that humans interacted with death.
1: Thank you so much for clarifying this, James, since we really tend to forget sometimes the big picture when we're talking about diseases that lead to death eventually. And when we are talking about cancer, what is really standing in the way of curing cancer? I never really got my head around this, James. Is it the pharma industry? Is it regulation? Or is it because of where we stand with the insufficient solutions science has come up with up until today?
0: Yeah. So cancer is a particularly challenging disease, because we could talk all day about cancer, and I'll try to be as brief as possible here, because cancer is at its heart a disease of evolution, right? It is our cells following their own evolutionary path and trying to grow as much as possible and outcompete their neighbor cells, which means that once cancer achieves a certain level of growth it becomes extremely extremely hard to control it because anything you do to try to slow the growth of that cancer it will have the tools to evolve around that challenge and so it has not been to directly answer your question it has not been a regulatory or pharma industry problem that has prevented us from from curing cancer it is instead a problem with the way that we are approaching the disease generally, which is that we have a medical system that is waiting for people to get sick, and only after those people are sick do we start trying to treat their disease. But by the time that that disease is big enough and problematic enough to make that person sick, it can evolve around any of the treatments that we give it, and that creates a really, really tough problem. But There's an enormous amount of research, both from my field where I work in the aging biology world, to create medicines that can prevent our cells from becoming cancerous in the first place, and in the existing biotech world that are detecting tumors and figuring out how to attack them before they become evolutionary And that very, very early detection and treatment is going to be the way that we ultimately end up with something close to a cure for cancer. But just devising new treatments that we kind of wait until a person is sick and then put a treatment on top of it, that system from a medical point of view, that is just not going to work. Again, I could talk about this all day with you, but it's based on a very old way of approaching this disease from the 1970s when we actually thought cancer was caused by a virus. And so we were like, ah, well, we can approach cancer the same way that we approach an infectious disease, right? You find it and then you just have to find the right drug to eliminate that that infectious infectious agent. But that's not the way cancer works and that's not the way we're going to find a cure for it.
1: Let's talk a little more about prevention versus treatment. What do you think is the challenge here in terms of changing the system towards prevention? What's the general obstacle here?
0: So the general ob- obstacle has to do with how our system today makes it very tough to run clinical trials to introduce new medical Inventions that can be used as preventatives, right? And why is that? well, there, there's actually a very good reason for it. and And the good reason is that we have decided to operate a medical system that is based on the power of double-blinded placebo-controlled, randomized clinical trials, right? And mm-hmm. and the randomized clinical trial is a very, very good tool for understanding if a drug is safe and if it is effective at doing what it's supposed to do. But when you move into the prevention context, think about the type of clinical trial that you have to run to show that a preventative drug will work. You have to Take two groups of people, give one a placebo and one your experimental drug, and imagine that these are both pretty healthy groups of people. You give one the placebo, one the experimental drug, and how long do you have to wait to see if that drug Is actually going to work? How many years and how many hundreds of millions of dollars do you have to invest in research and development before that drug appears? And that has been the primary challenge in front of the prevention world. And we're just now starting to work with regulatory bodies and scientists around the world to figure out ways to to do these clinical trials in very short bursts, right? Or you could run mm-hmm. a two to three year clinical trial, see mm-hmm. if something in that person is changing and use that to approve a drug once you know it's safe and you have a pretty good idea that it's going to be effective. And then you can get that on the market to people and then measure in the long term after 10 or 20 years to see if it's really effective. And I think that this is actually a critical juncture that the healthcare industry is going to move through this century because treating individual diseases as opposed to going for this large prevention uh, plan, it's it's just never going to really change the human experience. Even we yeah. were just talking about cancer, right? Even if we invented a magical pill that cured all cancer, which we're not going to do, it would only extend human health span or lifespan, excuse me, it would only extend human lifespan by about three years, right? That's 5%.
1: That is largely largely unknown, I think. I would
0: say so. Yeah, it's it's a very you know we all talk about oh we need to cure cancer and so many of us know cancer survivors or people we've lost to cancer, um, and 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 it's remarkable for me to think about those statistics because really there are so many things that break down in our bodies altogether that even if we created a cure for cancer, the likelihood is that cancer is a disease of older people. And if someone wasn't getting cancer, they would often be getting some heart disease-related complication or metabolic disease or, or neurodegenerative disease a few years afterwards. And so these statistics have been done, and it is a pessimistic picture, which is why our approach is to really target the fundamental things that are changing as we get older that cause cancer risk, but also Alzheimer's risk and all of these other things at the same time.
1: That's truly powerful what you are telling us here, James. So let's talk a bit about what that really would mean if now, like a decade from now or two decades, three decades, we are living in the middle of a climate crisis, And since you're visioning a world in which we all live much longer and eventually forever, maybe even, what would the damage be we would be even adding to our planet?
0: So the founder of demography, right? the the person who first started thinking about the challenges of counting people and, and measuring populations and the effect that populations have on society, was this guy Thomas Malthus. In the 1700s, and and after counting the number of people on the planet and calculating how much arable land there was on the planet, he pronounced, "Oh my God, we are going to pretty soon be at one billion people on this Earth, and we will never ever be able to feed one billion people. There is going to be an enormous crisis, and people there are going to be." famines and floods and people are going to die in huge numbers. And his solution to that observation was to be an advocate for mass genocide. And we're all very lucky that he was wrong because even though all of his calculations are correct, a few years later, this little thing called the Industrial Revolution started and increased the carrying capacity of the earth enormously. And so we've seen human innovation outpace our effects on our environment dramatically in the last 2 to 300 years. And so you may call me an optimist in this sense, but I am firmly convinced that as we continue to improve our technology, that we will continue to have a better understanding of our long-term impacts on the planet and better control over the abundant energy sources that we can harness to to control that, those effects on the planet. And so I would almost flip it around and say, if we believe that the carrying capacity of the Earth is much larger than the seven and a half billion people that we have today, which I certainly do, then I think actually the major problem is that we have political systems that are designed to be extremely short-termist where the leaders that we have entrusted in protecting this planet of ours for the next generation that they are ultimately acting in their own self-interest and they know that not just their you know this election cycle but by the time that they see the real major effects of the choices that they are making today that they will be long gone and if you instead populate the the halls of power with people who will be active participants in the world that they are creating, I think you will get people making much more long-term decisions.
1: Hmm, that is so, so important and big, what you're saying there, James. Really, would you call yourself a humanist
0: scientist? I'm not sure. I like to think of myself as an optimist. Mm. And I'm an optimist about humanity, and I'm an optimist about technology. But I think that we have to mix that with, you know, doses of realism.
1: That sounds good. Uh, We might really call for more people like you, James. (laughs) Especially in these times where everybody sometimes forgets that even though we are living through a big crisis, it's our thinking that doesn't make it better. How do you think humanity can find meaning in a life that lasts
0: forever. So we started out talking a little bit about this at the, at the top of the show. My view is really quite a radical one, and I don't expect everyone to to agree with this view. And even, you know, my close friends and members of my team that I work with don't all share this view. But my personal view is that the only way to give meaning to a life is to approach each day as if we are not necessarily immortal but indefinite. Because I think the secular way of looking at meaning is broadly that we have to create our own meaning, right? That that our minds and our experience, we have to imbue the world around us with our meaning. And I walk around and I see myself doing that every single day, that I see the impact that I'm having on people around me and the impact that the world is having on me, and I find meaning in that experience. And the notion that I am here for a cosmic blink of an eye, right, 80 years or whatever it is, and then we'll be snuffed out forever, I think that detracts from the meaning that I give to my life. And for the same reason we were just talking about with the climate stuff before, right? If I can think through every one of my decisions and be, oh, well, like, how will this impact the me of the future 50 years, 100 years down the line, and actually think of myself in that sort of long-term way, I become much more aligned with the self that I want to be and the choices that I want to make, which are for the long-term good of everyone. And that I find extremely meaningful. And so I don't know if as this philosophical idea becomes a scientific and medical option over the next couple of decades, I don't know if you'll see a lot more people Moving to that kind of philosophy that I hold, but I find it a very powerful and meaningful philosophy to wake up in the morning and and motivate me to do something, I think, meaningful in the world every day.
1: After this powerful conversation, James, I'm really, really excited to hear the answer to my last question I have for you, a question that I'm asking each of my guests. What is the legacy you want to leave behind, James, other than money, obviously?
0: <laughs> well, so I guess I have two answers to that question. The, the first, in rhyming with all of the other stuff that we've talked about, I don't want to leave anything behind. My hope is to continue living whatever legacy or whatever whatever impact yeah. that I can have in the world. And so it's a, a bit of a dodging of the question, but I actually think the more important part here is that I am not a believer in in what I see as like the hero myth of technological progression. And so I had the amazing opportunity to come together with a group of entrepreneurs and investors and scientists to create this biotech company, Cambrian, that I think is the most meaningful thing I've ever contributed to in my life. But it's not just me that has created that thing, right? It's this large group of people. And if I wasn't here doing this, I think someone else would be doing it. And so I'm not a big believer in like, oh, this is going to be my legacy or even small groups legacy. I instead want to focus on goals for technology and our culture and our species, and I want to be a contributor to helping us round the turn. From 75 years ago, we rounded the turn from having infectious diseases be the greatest killers of humanity, and now it's the age-related diseases that are the greatest killers of humanity. And I want to be part of rounding the turn again as part of this century, where we will move past the age-related diseases being the greatest killers of humanity. And we doubled the lifespan of humans in the last 120 years. And I think that we can double it or better, again, by eliminating these diseases. But it's not just going to be me. It's going to be a whole group of brilliant, brilliant people working together.
1: Wow. James, is there anything you want to add to today's conversation
0: here? I I think we've covered an awful lot of ground. I just hope that uh, We've covered things in in the right amount of depth. And yeah, I've had a really great time chatting with you, Christiana. Totally,
1: James, totally. So thank you so much for these mind-boggling insights. It's just amazing. And thank you so much for having been my guest today on Before
0: It's Too Late. Thank you very much for having me.
1: I really enjoyed this profound conversation, and I hope you did too. For more episodes of Before It's Too Late make sure to subscribe. If this episode spoke to you, consider sharing it with a friend or loved one you think might benefit from it. Thank you for listening.